Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Culture and Compliance Chronicles, a podcast series focused on the behavioral sciences approach to risk management. I'm Tina Yu, a litigation and enforcement associate at Ropes and Gray. In part two of this two-part discussion, I'm once again joined by Julian Denobitia, who is the executive coach and director of Down the Corridor. In part one, we talked about the importance of relationships and making connections in our approach to compliance. In the second part, we'll discuss techniques to help us establish relationships and make outreach more effective. There was this really interesting guy on the radio I heard the other day, an American law professor. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about how, um, I mean, we could take regulatory as an example or tax or any of those aspects of the law. They are so profoundly complex now that I don't think mm-hmm. anybody can know them all. I just don't <laughs> think it's possible. Average person who has to interact in some way, shape or form with the niceties, if you like, of the law, his view was it simply become impossible. And so mm-hmm. people don't bother. Mm-hmm. It's just it's too hard to get to, you know, it's, we'll just pretend it's not there. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about dealing with that level of complexity and you know, what alternatives there might be to having that level of complexity within a legal framework. And what he came up with was the notion of really going right back to a set of very simple core principles mm-hmm. and, and breaking down breaking down whatever complexities there might be and, and, and turning mm-hmm. them into a set of principles that a person can take on. Yes, I, I definitely see that. I mean, from my own experience, if I see a very long paragraph with very, very long sentences um, made up of five-syllable words, um, mm-hmm. would I rather look at that versus three bullet points breaking down what that paragraph says? Um, mm. Of course, it's going to be the latter. Um, and that's just human nature. And then going further, how much would I have retained even if I did read that original very long paragraph with very long sentences and multiple five-syllable words? Um, I honestly don't know if I would retain the information there better than if I had actually looked at the three bullet points that summarized that huge paragraph. So I do think there are ways to present information that is more easily digestible. Um, Mm. There are ways to present information that makes it more memorable. And and I think that really comes comes into the role of a lawyer as well, because in a way, we are the ones that are being tasked with digesting, you know, very complex laws and regulations um, and all the case law that goes with it. Um, And we're tasked with, you know, coming up with the legal arguments, coming up with the legal precedents, and consolidating that into advice that is at the same time um, understandable, relatable, but also summarizes the key points of the law that we need to get across. Um, Mm. So ultimately, I, I do think the legal profession has a very, very big role in that. Um, and I think that role is even more important in organizations for, for all of the reasons that we had discussed. I, I really do think it is our jobs to, to get the message across. Um, and that's mm. why it's so important to remember your audience, right? Um, there's going to be ways of communicating among, you know, fellow legal professionals who know the lingo, who know the case law, who knows the precedents 
Um, and there's going to be somebody who's maybe spectacular at running the business, but not have that background in legal knowledge. Um, mm. So, so it is really bridging that gap. And how about fun? How about where does fun fit? I'll tell you. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I was I'm listening to you speaking and remembering, I'm remembering some of the some of the some of the games that we used to play you know, back in the old days when we were working with general counsel a lot and and trying to help them to learn faster. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I understood one fact, which is that fun is kind of the prerequisite for all accelerated learning. You know, if you think about. Mm-hmm. If you think about the process of us riding bicycles, you know, we spend a long time as kids falling off bicycles, crying, getting upset, hurt, getting hurt, um, feeling angry, feeling sad, feeling ashamed, having all of these things. We spend a long time f- feeling that way. So in one sense, we should really not be able to ride bicycles at all. And yet one day what happens is well, we just sat there and we stay on. And in that one moment of staying on, we learn, we we encode how to ride a bicycle, and we never ever forget. If I gave you a bicycle right now, you could ride one, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, was, I would hope so. <laughs> right, right. But in that one moment, what happens is is that we encode a, 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 a new something new. We learn something new, and what has us do that is the fun, the freedom, the liberation, the enjoyment that we experience out of the new thing called I can ride a bike. Right, mm-hmm. and so in a lot of the learning that we do with lawyers and regulatory people, what we try to do is to really tap into the extent to which learning a new thing may be accelerated proportionally to the amount of fun we're all having whilst we're learning it. And I appreciate that talking about fun and the bribery act uh, it sounds a bit oxymoronic, but actually. <laughs> It doesn't have to be, you know. I don't, I don't know if that's something that's ever um, crossed your radar or, or, or something that you're involved in or you explore with your clients to any extent. I do think fun. Um, it's it's part of the reward system, right? We won't go into the details about, um, you know, individual economic decisions and how mm-hmm. rewards and punishment will impact individual behavior right now. Um, but, you know, at the end of it, we all respond to rewards and incentives and we respond negatively to punishment and penalties. And and I think fun is a big part of that. I think on, on a psychological level, fun just makes it easier for us to internalize things. Um, I think, you know, there's examples where I have gone to a very interesting speech, but you know, half a year later, I only remember the jokes from it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I do think, um, you know, humor and fun, that makes a very profound impact in, in your message. And, and mm. I, I think this goes back to where we started in this conversation, which is, you know, yes, sometimes what we're trying to convey traditionally seems very dry, but we need to explore ways of communicating that in a different manner. Personally, I think we should always try to inject humor wherever we can, whether it's you know through summaries or easy to remember values. Um, that's 
being perpetuated throughout the organization. I think those are all ways that um, we can keep that distance, you know, between the legal and compliance and regulatory and the rest of the organization and, and the rest of the team, basically, much, much smaller. Yeah, I think that, you know, the most effective CEO, the most effective general counsel, the most effective anybody really who is in a professional role or a leadership role will always will always be focused primarily on one thing, which is the experience that they are creating for the other person. I think the most effective, certainly most effective CEOs, most effective lawyers definitely I've ever come across all have one thing in common, which is that they are curious. They are curious mm-hmm. about, they're curious about the relationship. That's what they're curious about. They're mm-hmm. curious about how how in that relationship they are making the other person, the other people feel. And as a result of that, I think what they get is a very, very different result from the ones that are not curious. All organizations, I think we can safely say, want to maximize the performance of the people inside their organization. Historically, what that's been around is, I guess, you know, a a kind of vanilla set of objectives and outcomes and milestones that are measurable and are communicated clearly clearly to the people inside those organizations and which those people are measured against, usually by a group of their peers at the end of the review period. And then we go through the process and uh, on we go again. And increasingly Mm -hmm. what I encounter across organizations is that that's not the thing anymore. The thing now Mm -hmm. is a coaching approach. And a coaching approach is one Mm -hmm. in which you have a very different culture, I think. If it's done in the most effective way, is a relationship-based approach. And I think that that's the, real, that's the common thing you know, uh, mm-hmm. that I encounter. Most effective CEOs, most effective lawyers, they have that relationship-based approach. I, I do definitely see a, a trend in that. Um, and, and it is a trend in the compliance space as well. And, and that's really because relationships, I, I think, is the first step to having those conversations and and having that rapport to really come to a consensus on what steps are we going to do that's ultimately going to benefit the organization. And if you're operating in a silo, then, um, and I'm oversimplifying here, but if you're operating in a silo, then if you're in sales, then it's very possible that your view is to maximize sales, whatever the cost is you're in legal, then it's very possible that your view is going to be, let's just keep the company out of trouble. Um, And here is a 50-page memo on why it's important to do that. And if you're in Mm -hmm. finance, maybe it's, well, I just need to make sure there's no um, strange expenditures or unnecessary expenditures. So fill out this 10-page form on why 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 this expense came to be and uh, and you know varying levels of details on on how it was incurred so i i can see how in the siloed environment um everyone will kind of just go down its own rabbit hole and that's why mm-hmm. it's so important to have those ties and to have those relationships and, and to mm-hmm. you know like you mentioned like having more of this coaching um, process instead of just trying to um, trying to promulgate a lot of black letter regulations and procedures um, and kind of expecting people to figure it out on their own because 
we've seen time and time again that that's just not what works. What works is this approach that you're you've you've mentioned, and it is it is from a coaching perspective. It is inspiring people to do what they need to do. Um, it is getting mm-hmm. people of their own initiative to act in a way um, that that is consistent with um, the organization's values. So so I think there there's definitely value to that. Um, and I'm glad that you're seeing it um, in the various businesses that you're working with. That, that brings me to another question, and it is you've spoken about how different it was, you know, working in private practice and then going in-house, and now you've taken on this coaching role. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would find it very interesting just to see how – how you felt that organizations perceived you um, in in those different roles. Um, And conversely, in your experience, how organizations are gradually becoming, you know, more open to, you know, this more coaching collaborative Mm -hmm. process versus Mm -hmm. um, what you might've seen when, when you were just a lawyer in private practice. So, I mean, I think the short answer to that is very bad, bad, and a lot better uh, in, <laughs> in order, right? <laughs> um, I think that, uh, um, you know, that to those, those experiences that I had were driven to a very large extent by my own lack of curiosity about myself, really. Uh, and, of course, you know, um, coaches who aren't curious about themselves I'm not sure how effective they are. So I would never do what I do without having a coach myself. And I'm still engaged in that process, that that process of being curious about myself and therefore how I come across and how I interact with others and the, the impact that I have. Um, so I think that certainly when I started coaching uh, other people, there was a very different perception around it. Um, I think that changes probably from the US actually predominantly in the early 2000s around what the word even meant and what it was and you know and, and what it was for I think started to change perceptions around what the role of an effective coach is and of course you know the role of an effective coach is exactly the same in any environment whether you're a sports coach whether you're a voice coach whether you're an executive coach, it only makes any difference. It's to help your clients to maximize their performance in the environment in which they find themselves. That's it. That's mm-hmm. that's what it's all about. And the vehicle, the delivery system for making, for the, for facilitating those changes in attitude that give you a new result is the relationship. Eric Dehan, he runs the Ashridge School of Coaching, and he's done the, the biggest bit of research on this, I think, that I know of personally, and I have a huge amount of respect for him. And he is very clear in his research, again, is to focus on the relationship that's important. That's really the key thing. I think that nobody took emotion seriously probably until the year 2000 in the psychological uh, sphere. Um, And then folks started putting people inside machines that made lights go off, you know, and we had, you know, uh, people actually able to see how their brains were operating um, for the first time. that the the conversation that it started around us, our brains, our behaviour and business has has changed things a lot really over the last ten years. So that experience that I have of people who who are senior inside any organisation is that they're absolutely they're really hungry for feedback. They're really hungry to find out those aspects of themselves 
that are hidden from their own view. They want to know so that they can, you know, so that they can, so they can do the stuff that they do well more. They, mm-hmm. they really want that feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, inside organizations, I think, you know, in leadership teams, the attitude is, you know, if you're an amateur, you're going to do it on your own. And if you're a professional, you're going to get a coach. In the law, I'm not so sure. I think that's still a, <laughs> a, a kind of, um, you know, uh, a, a, a journey that is uh, ongoing, you know. But mm-hmm. but I think that the, the, the attitude around coaching is changing generally quite a lot. I found it really difficult to become a lawyer, and I found it even mm-hmm. more difficult to stay being a lawyer. And I think it's a hard job. You know, it's a difficult mm-hmm. job, and it's... It's a job where that is full of people who are trying to do their best. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the perception around lawyers and regulatory people globally, if you like, on a macro level, has has changed that much since I started practicing a lawyer as a lawyer. And I, I'm sad about that. You know, I just don't see that shift in perception around lawyers even now. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Um, I agree. I, I think it's very hard to get that image of lawyers. Um, outside of your head, you know, with what's mm. being, you know, the Hollywood portrayals, um, what you see in the news, and, and that ge- general public sentiment on on what lawyers are like. Um, mm. So, so I, I I see where you're coming from, and I think bundled up with all of that, just going back to you know how lawyers and how regulatory folks are often perceived in in organizations, I, I think it's, it's a very hard bias to get rid of. Um, Mm. but I do think it's going to be up to the lawyers. It's up, it's going to be up to the regulatory employees. It's going to be up to the compliance teams to proactively Mm. step out of that or proactively take steps to Mm. combat that image because, you know, other people, the, the non-lawyers, the non-regulators, um, the non-compliance individuals, they're, they're not going to, you know, one day decide on their own that they're going to look at these functions differently. And, and I think mm. that goes not just for the legal and regulatory and compliance functions. That goes, for, that, that goes for functions like finance or human resources or Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. all of these other support functions if you will. Um, and, and I think it's, it's being proactive. It's, you know, taking mm. the steps to really be empathetic to how you're being perceived. And then if you think that's not a fair designation, or if you want to change that image, then, then it's the onus is really on, on us to, to take mm. that first step. And a lot of that outreach is going to be, you know, proactive conversations. It's going to be what makes it easier, just thinking proactively, what will make it easier for people to understand what I'm trying to convey, um, what mm. is going to be more effective. Um, and, and I think it's, it's those little steps that ultimately gradually will, will add up to a bigger movement in, in first how you're you're portrayed and how willing people are going to be to accept what you have to say as a result. Hmm. That's really great. It's so interesting. I wonder if you would be open to me sharing with you one of the first things that I do with with all of the professionals probably at some stage to support them in, in taking exactly those steps that you're talking about. 
I would love to hear it because that was my exact question that I was going to ask next. So if you get that piece of paper and in the middle of the piece of paper, you write a circle and you write you, in other words, Tina, you inside that circle. Right? Okay. That's right, Tina. Okay. So now I want you to just think about, just think about who you know, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I don't, it's not every single person, but try to break them down into into categories. I guess you know lawyers that wrote Rubs and Gray, right? So you know lawyers inside your own organization. Mm -hmm. So they would be one heading, one category. Who else do you know? What other um, categories of people do you know? Not just inside work, everywhere. Trick is to make the categories as 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 small and as manageable and as simple as possible. Lawyers you went to law school with? Clients? Lawyers acting to the same clients? And you see that we could go on probably adding more and more bite size, if you like, categories, yes. small, you know, simple categories of, of different types of people that you know, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. And just, just pick one category at random. I'll say ropes and gray lawyers then. <laughs> okay, ropes and gray lawyers. So, okay, think about one lawyer, think about the lawyer at ropes and gray that you absolutely like the most who most comfortable with, right? Okay. Uh, okay. And you could you could score you could write that person's name down and you could score them out of five in terms of their relationship. One terrible, can't stand the sight of them. Five, I really love this person. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you could score that person. Okay. And you could carry on listing, you know, in order if you like, those people at Ropes and Grace who you are who most comfortable with, most you know, have the best relationships with, right? And then, of course, you could go through all of the other categories and go through exactly the same process. And what you would end up with is is something called a relationship map. Mm. All right? And that, and that might be, that might be, maybe, the first time that you have ever seen what is, I think, the most valuable law asset any lawyer or anyone has, which is, their relationships, their secure attachment mm -hmm. relationships, right? Because that map of people is 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 what you can then go on to deploy, if you like, in order to achieve the outcomes that you're looking to achieve. And the reason why it's, it's much easier to approach it in a relationship-based way than it is to approach it in a, what would I call it, a, a, a kind of um, a doing way, if you like, so approaching it in a feeling way rather than a doing way, it's much easier because you're much more motivated to go and speak to those people who are on your list because you like them more, because mm -hmm. you get on with them more. And if you think about that conversation inside some of your clients and listing those clients, listing your the way that you feel about your clients, they are the people who you are much more likely to pick up the phone to engage with, have the conversation, be open with, uh, try something new with than not. So they are, that map is your map of relationships. And for, for everybody I think that I've worked with, um, doing that map and, and working on that map and thinking about that map and using that map as a way to try to secure the objectives that you are seeking to achieve when working with me or, or, or whatever it is that you're doing or when trying to make a change inside an organization is probably the best place to start always because you're just going to be much more motivated to do it because you're approaching it from a relationship-based approach rather than from a, a doing approach. So your homework is to go off and complete the whole map. <laughs> <laughs>
that's fascinating actually um no thank you for that 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 that's a really interesting way of approaching it but it's it, i'm hoping that it's really simplistic and childlike because those are the things that tend to work you yeah. know i know the first time i did my map i just haven't thought about my relationships in that way mm-hmm. but this is a way of auditing your relationships and starting to treat them as as what they are which is of course the mm-hmm. most valuable asset that you have you know and, and, and managing them appropriately as a result that's amazing no that i really i really like that but that's where it starts it starts mm-hmm. you know, i think if you're going to adopt the relationship a relationship based approach in what you're doing the first mm-hmm. thing you have to do is work out what your relationships look like you know right. how you feel about about the various people inside your world mm-hmm. because by by virtue of doing that you are probably going to be much more motivated to do whatever it is that you need to do you know mm-hmm. in, 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 than having to engage with people that you don't have that same um level of connection with and and that that really is um you know like we've been discussing this whole whole time that that very important first step um, and, and you know, just making that proactive outreach mm. um, yeah. to to everyone else. Yeah. To give a practical example, I guess if you're engaged with a client inside an organisation where they have some issues, and and you want to adopt a more formalistically, if you like, relationship-based approach to making to supporting your client and making the changes that they want to see inside their organisation. Absolutely, I suggest. You know, I couldn't agree with you more with what you said earlier on. Just to have somebody to talk with, to you know, to explore it with, to speak out loud with, is probably a really good idea in terms of minimising your regulatory risk. The question is, how do you get people inside an organisation to do that if they've never done it before? Well, mm-hmm. I'd have thought that the thing to do is to speak with the people that you know best first and get on with the, the best first and start the process there because they're probably going to do your work for you. Yes, I, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> so Julian, thank you so much for joining me um, for this insightful discussion. And thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you tuning in to our Culture and Compliance Chronicles podcast series. For more information, please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com. And of course, if we can help you navigate any of the topics we discuss, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. You can also subscribe to the series wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening.